Earlier this week, I was asked by one of my children, why do we have a covenant renewal service? And we have been observing it here at Bethel, I think since my calculations, right, since 2015. But why? Why do we do it? I'm sure we probably talked about it when we first began it, but maybe we haven't talked about it in a while, but it's a good question. Why have a service? Why do something different like this? Well, the answer is, it, it didn't start with us. This is not a Bethel tradition. This isn't an ARP tradition. Actually, the beginnings of the service is found in the Methodist tradition. John Wesley, who's one of the founders of the Methodist Church, began to teach covenant renewal to Methodists around 1753. He did it with a view to encouraging Christians toward spiritual discipline and consistency of life in and for Christ. He was looking around at People who were gathering and seeing they had a need to better understand spiritual discipline. And they needed to be consistent in, in, in life and for Christ. As we talked about this morning in our, sermon, our Sunday school lesson on the book of Mark, that we don't want to be hypocrites. We don't want to be those who say one thing but do something else. And I think John Wesley is looking around at Methodists going, well, you're becoming a bunch of hypocrites. And we need to deal with this. The same could be said for us. We want to avoid being hypocrites. So two years later, he introduced it uh, more formally as a special service built into the church calendar. So for those of you who have a, a Methodist background, this is, I imagine, somewhat familiar to you. It comes from your tradition. But over the years, other churches, denominations, such as, as us, as ARPs, have included it in their church calendar. But Wesley actually got this idea from one of our forefathers, a Puritan named Richard Eileen, who wrote a book that had a really long title, as typical in the Puritan, uh, Puritan ways. But in this book, Eileen was eager to encourage professing Christians towards the kind of devotion to Christ that was more than a mere profession of faith. It's easy to talk the talk. It's not always as easy to walk the walk. And that's been true of Christians since the New Testament. We find some of the New Testament letters addressing that very thing. Well, you say you're a Christian. You must live as a Christian. They go hand in hand. And Eileen in his book emphasized God's absolute sovereignty and salvation, which leads to our duty before God to live out our new faith in Christ. And Christianity isn't just a verbal profession. It's a way of life. John the Baptist said, I must decrease so Christ may increase. We've said before, Paul said that for me to live is Christ. So the Christian faith is not meant just to be a a mere verbal profession, but it shines in all of our lives. We think of Paul's exhortation in Philippians chapter 2. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works within you to will and to act according to his good purpose. There's nothing casual about Christian living. It doesn't happen by osmosis. It doesn't happen by accident. It's not just going to land in our lap and all of a sudden we're going to end up doing it. It is an intentional Deliberate choice we make every day, every occasion, every moment, we have the intentional, deliberate choice of living for Christ in light of his grace and his word. 
Christian faith is knowing who Christ is through faith and then living out that faith for his glory. And that's why we have this service. A time for us to be reminded that we have a covenantal God. And in his covenant, he has offered us sovereign grace. And in that grace, he has called for us to live for his glory in light of that sovereign grace. So that's the why of what we're doing. And we're going to look a little bit more at some of the how we find this morning in Deuteronomy chapter 10. So let me pray for us as we take time now to come before God's word. So join with me as we pray. Our God and Father in heaven, as we've just spent these uh, few moments talking through kind of these preliminaries, we pray now that you would direct, continue to direct our attention to you through your word. Oh Lord, may we understand your graciousness, your goodness. May we be struck by who you are. And in that, may we be renewed. And may we tell us that we are reborn. Lord, guide us in this way this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 through 22. If you'll join me now in the standing for the reading of God's word. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your hearts and with all your soul. And to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, for which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens and the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart and love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples as you are this day. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your hearts and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner. Therefore, uh, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt 70 persons and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. The grass withers and the flowers fade. The word of our God stands forever. Amen. You may be seated. Here. Anything like me, you probably had a point in your life where you've had a conversation with a person, and you, at some point in the conversation or after the conversation, you've walked away and you have thought, oh, the audacity of that person. Oh, the audacity of who they are. It might have been the way they talked to you. They were condescending. They talked down to you. They, uh, they were not kind in how they talked to you. Maybe it's what they said. Maybe it's what they asked you to do. Something about that person, something about that conversation struck you as being audacious. How can they be so rude to talk to me this way? How can they be so bold to ask me to do something like that? The audacity of that person. And we know that when we have that sort of conversation, we have that sort of reaction 
it can then very much determine how we choose to respond to that person. If somebody has been so rude to you and talked down to you, has been so condescending, you're probably going to choose not to talk to them again or do your best to avoid a conversation with them. Or they have been audacious in what they have asked you to do, you're going to do your best to avoid doing what they've asked you to do. Now, because we're good Southern ARPs, we're going to be too polite to be audacious back to them. We're not going to dish it back. But we will certainly do our best to avoid them and not do what they've asked us to do. We meet an audacious person. We have that sort of encounter. Our tendency is to avoid them and not do what they've asked us to do. And I think when we're honest with ourselves, we can find that we've had the same reaction to God. And to some of his commands for his people. And in that reaction, it has determined our response to him. Because we can read a passage like this. Where God gives these obligations, these demands, these commands. Love me with all your heart and soul. Follow after me. Give your life over to me. We can read something like this, and somewhere in the recesses of our mind, a voice says, man, God is audacious. The audacity of him to say this to me and to command me like this. Just who does he think he is to talk to me like this? Who does God think he is to command me to live in such a way? The audacity of God. Now again, because we're good ARPs, we're never going to say that out loud, are we? We're not going to teach this in Sunday school or Bible study and come to a passage like this and say, man, don't you guys find God audacious for calling us to die to our sins and live for him? Who does he think he is? We would never say that. But somewhere in our mind, in our heart, there's that voice. And it's loud and it's convincing. And we listen to it. The audacity of God. But because we're, we're good AR, ARPs, if, if, if somebody else were asked us that question, who's the audacity of God? Who does he think he is to, to command us? Well, you know, he is, we would say you know, he's sovereign. He's a, he's a creator. He's the God of gods, the king of kings. And if we want to get really ARP, we'll go, we know he is a spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable, his being, wisdom, power, holiness, just as good as the truth. Who are, who are you, who are we to question him? We, we know the biblical and theological answers of who God is in our minds. We, we know his identity, but we also have to be honest with ourselves. There are times when that identity of God doesn't make it from our minds to our hearts. And when it just stops in our brain but doesn't go to our heart, then we begin to find we're not going to live out the meaning of God's identity. And that gets us in trouble because then that's when we start to think of God as being audacious. And again, I think if we're honest with ourselves, we find that some portion of our willingness to sin is because we think of the sheer audacity of God to command us to live our lives for. 
We find it to be audacious, don't we? How dare he ask that for me to live a life and that I die to these sins? These sins that I can love and I can cherish. Why would God want me to be different from my friends? Why would God not want me to have a good time on the weekends, at parties? Why would he do this to me, the audacity of him to do that? A a, a life in which he commands for the complete devotions, it says here, of our heart and soul, which is everything. God isn't asking for a part-time Christian. He's not asking for 75%. He has given us his everything. When John says, for God so the world, he gave his only begotten son. That's the way he's saying he has given us his everything. He's given us Emmanuel to die on the cross. And we have the audacity of thinking we should be part-time Christians. But we struggle with the audacity of God, don't we? The audacity he would command us to live in such a way. That's precisely why we have a service like this. We're sinners. We're born sinners. We're sinful. We will question and doubt God. That's what the psalm, we find it in the psalms. We'll disobey God. That's where we find the cross we can find that we find God to be audacious. So in that, we need to be reminded of who God is. And in that reminder of who he is, a reminder then that we have a response to him. Everybody ever born has a response to God. And the question is, how do we choose to respond? In the context of our, of, our, of our service this morning, in the context of our passage, we're talking about God as the covenantal God. This is a great, it's a great reform term, isn't it? You find a lot of you know, Reformed Presbyterian churches in covenant reformed or covenant Presbyterian. Right? It's a great reformed word. What does it mean? We talk about the covenant of grace. We've talked about this before. It's a a promise, an arrangement whereby God has planned to save his people from the just consequences of their sins, to save them from their immorality, from, from eternal misery and death, to save them from damnation. And the word covenant means a disposition or arrangement. It's a promise that God has made, an arrangement that was made within himself, by himself. We talked about this in the covenant redemption that before the beginning of time the triumph God, the Father, the Son and Holy Spirit made this covenant within himself to save us from our sins and we had no part in the making of it and we see that symbolized to Abraham when God comes out and, 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 and symbolizes makes this, this, uh, this covenant with Abraham it's God who makes it we have no part in it but it's God and his sovereignty who makes it with us. But it's a covenant of grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace is that we get what we do not deserve. It's undeserved favor. And the grace of God is divine favor manifested to us sinners when we deserve just the opposite. 
Everything in our life screams for hell. Everything in our life screams for damnation. God in His grace saves us from that. And this is the context of how God relates to us. This is relationship with us. He has made this covenant with us. I will be your God and you will be my people. But who is the God behind this obligation? Who is the God who would have the audacity to make such a covenant? Well, to answer that question, we turn to our passage here in Deuteronomy, but we have to turn backwards. We have to go back to Genesis 1, and we find that from the very beginning, God is telling us who he is. The very first verse of of Scripture is a verse of identity. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. That isn't a statement of activity in of itself. That's a statement of identity. The creator God is the one, and he is the creator God who made all things. And it goes on to tell us that he made all things good. It's Genesis 1 and 2. He is the, the forgiving God who will forgive his people their sins. That's Genesis 3. After Adam and Eve rebelled against the goodness of God, his goodness continues and he says, I will send forth a seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent to crush the one who led you into sin. And that's a covenant, isn't it? He's the covenant God who promises to save his people. And from that point forward, the Bible is the testimony of a good God who is always good to his people. He, he faithfully provides for them. We think of some major hallmarks that he led them out of Egypt. Why? Because they deserved it? No, because he's good. And we find it in that testimony that he loved them in spite of their stubborn sinfulness. He guided them in spite of their stubborn rebellion. He cared for them in spite of their stubbornness to think that either they could, they, they could take care of themselves or they could turn to other false gods and idols who would take care of them. And all that leads up to Deuteronomy 10, which is a testimony to the goodness of God. But in the covenant, we think about also just a few chapters before Deuteronomy 10, where God calls Moses up to the mountain to give him the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments serve as a testimony of God's covenant faithfulness to his people. When he tells us, you shall have no other gods before me, he's not saying that just to be a jealous lover. He's saying it because he knows he's the good God who will take care of his people and nobody else can or will. When he commands us to keep the Sabbath day holy, he's not doing that to be just exclusive. He's doing it because he knows we need rest in him, physical and spiritual rest. So when he calls Moses up upon the mountain to give him the Ten Commandments, they serve as a testimony of God's covenant faithfulness to his people. And then our response of faithfulness to God because of his covenant. Have you ever noted how the Ten Commandments begin? It doesn't begin with the first commandments. It begins with a statement of identity. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It begins with an identity of God's goodness. 
Before God commands his people, this is how you need to live. He says to them, this is coming from your good and loving God. He is the Lord who has always led them to goodness. He is the God who has saved them into his goodness. These people know the testimony of God's goodness. They know the stories of him delivering his people out of Egypt and how they have, he has taken care of them in the 40 years of, of, of wilderness of, of wandering. This is the God who makes a covenant with his people. It's a covenant that flows from his goodness. And the covenant faithfulness he calls us in, it comes from his goodness. So that's the audacity of God. How could he be so bold and demanding and commanding such a thing? Because he is the good God, the caring God, the loving God, the gracious God. He's the one who says, when you pray to me, pray in this manner, our Father. He's the one who sends his spirit, the third person of the Trinity, into our hearts to enable us to cry out, Abba, Father. That is the audacity of God. And it's from that goodness that God calls us to a covenant faithfulness to him. Because he's the good God who has knit us together in our mother's wombs. He's the good God who has fearfully and wonderfully made each of us. He's the good God who knows the number of hairs upon our head. And for some of us upon our face. He's a good God who gave his only son for us. He's a good God who loves us and knows what is best for us. And knowing God and his covenant, we are called to know him in his goodness. And when we know that God is indeed a good God, then we, don't, we cannot come to a passage such as Deuteronomy 10 and find it to be a burden. We come and we find it a delight because it comes from our good Father and he, we know He only wants the best for us. It's the good God's guide to a good life. It's kind of a mouthful, isn't it? That's what the Ten Commandments are, aren't they? That's what these obligations are. The good God's guide to a good life. That's the lens in which we are to view this passage and to understand it. We read it and go, well, of course I want to revere and respect God. Of course I want to walk in a way as he's deemed best for me. I want to love him as much as he loves me. I want to keep all that he has commanded me for my good. I want to do this because he is a good God and he only wants good for me. Many of us have a general idea of what Romans 8.28 says, don't we? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. That helps us deal with tragedy. That helps us deal with chaos. But it's also a statement of the covenant, isn't it? That I trust in everything God's done because he is doing it for my good. And when we understand it in that way, so much should change for us. Sadly, I think for many professing Christians, and I put myself in this category, 
our default position when it comes to sin is, I know it's bad, but it's okay because I'm forgiven. I know God tells me no, but it's okay because there's grace and I'm forgiven. Therefore, I can indulge in this sin because God will forgive me of it. And he'll understand I'm just looking to have a good time. And how can God be mad about me just wanting to have a good time? Yet, if we truly know that God is good, it changes how we view sin. I I think to him, how deep the Father's love for us summarizes it well. It was my sin that held him there. Think about that. When you sing that, when you think that, it was my sin that held him there. In God's goodness, the Father sent the Son to suffer hell on the cross for us. And it's not the drunkard's sin that holds him there. It's not the adulterer's sin that holds him there. It's not the terrorist's sin that holds him there. It's my sin. James William McManus, beginning on June 29th, 1976. My sin held him on the cross. It was my sins that nailed him to the cross. It was my sins that shoved the the thorn of crowns upon his head. It was my sins that caused him to be beat within an inch of his life. How can I choose sin? How can we, professing to know the goodness of God, choose sin over him, Satan over Christ, damnation over grace? We think of the audacity of God what he keeps us from. And the covenant teaches the audacity of God in his goodness. Our cats have discovered a snake in our backyard. And our cats love us. We know this because they keep on bringing the snake back up to our back door. And supposedly, from what we understand the psychology of cats, that means they love us because they're trying to kill us. I love my children. So I tell them, go out and pick up the snake with your bare hand and play with it. And let's just see what happens. That's not love. And I didn't really do that, just for clarity. We took a rake and we picked it up and we threw it out onto the woods. 
And then the cats found it again and brought it back up to the house. So it's, it's, it's a really dumb snake and really loving cats. It's a combination there. The audacity of God is that in his goodness, he calls us away from sin. And our problem is we find that to be too audacious for our sinfulness, don't we? So we come to this service to be reminded that our God has made a covenant with us out of his goodness. And the life he calls us to live in and for him is a good life. And the minute we begin to doubt that is the minute we begin to doubt the goodness of God. And look at where that led Adam and Eve to. And Judas too. As we come before this table this morning, let's keep in our hearts and minds that God is good. And he has called us to a good life. Join me now as we pray.